Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Bill Schaffner. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID this year and reflect on notable public health accomplishments, we're talking with thought leaders, public health heroes, and champions of disease prevention, while also building momentum for the future. Our guest today, Dr. Peter Marks, is director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, or CBER, at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. CBER regulates and researches products that touch lives daily, including vaccines. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Marks played a key role in transforming the way that FDA approaches approval and licensure of new vaccines and other prevention tools. He first joined FDA in 2012 as CBER Deputy Director and became Director of the Center in 2016. In 2022, he became a member of the prestigious National Academy of Medicine. Born in Brooklyn, New York, and the father of two grown children, he now lives with his wife in Washington, D.C. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. To kick us off, can you tell us a bit how you first got interested in medicine? I understand there may be a story there. And also how the years that you spent as a cancer specialist helped inform your work at FDA, both before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. So thanks, first of all, for having me today. Although during college, I was originally interested in becoming a research biochemist, I had the opportunity to work in a hospital laboratory and after interacting with patients there, became interested in medicine. And I was lucky enough, ultimately, to be accepted into an MD-PhD program and worked with an incredible laboratory mentor applying physical chemical methods to cell biology. And the work that I did in the laboratory led me to pursue an internal medicine residency and then hematology and oncology fellowship, followed by a staff position as a clinician scientist. And treating cancer patients, primarily those with leukemias, exposed me to some of the profound challenges of medicine. And one of those is applying the best available evidence to the care of patients, but another is applying the best humanity we can when we're out of medical options. Then, following several years in academic medicine, I moved on to work in industry on drug development, but ultimately returned to academic medicine, eventually running the clinical service at a cancer center. And those experiences provided me with diverse background, as well as a perspective on drug development that really informed my work at FDA. And in particular, having had exposure to product development from a variety of different viewpoints, from discovery through development on through to administration. These really uh, helped me understand what's necessary to develop products rapidly when it came to generating a vaccine to protect against COVID-19. Well, Peter, you've had a great experience then and a lot of background. And in the spirit of celebrating the 50th anniversary of NFID, what are some of the most important changes you've seen related to infectious diseases during your career? And in particular, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on the shift in vaccination goals from the complete elimination of disease to now the emphasis, at least with these respiratory virus vaccines, to a reduction in severity. Well, by way of full disclosure, I should note that as a leukemia doctor, the treatment of infectious diseases has always been a close interest 
And that said, I feel lucky to have witnessed some really amazing accomplishments in the field of infectious diseases. I think this includes the development and refinement of antiretroviral therapies that really transformed human immunodeficiency virus infection, and also the development of effective oral therapies to lead to the resolution of hepatitis C infection, among any number of other things that I could cite. Really, that's not to mention the accomplishments we've seen in vaccines, such as the development of highly effective hepatitis B vaccines, shingles vaccines, uh, and more recently, the development of the mRNA vaccine technology that provides us with the agility to potentially address a number of pathogens besides COVID-19 in the future. But I think for, particularly as we've seen for COVID-19 and to an extent for influenza, right, the shift in the vaccination goal from the elimination of all disease to a reduction in severity seems quite reasonable as a first step. So I, I, I mean, obviously, right, and you're better off being alive than not being alive, and you're better off not being in the hospital than being in the hospital. But I don't know that we should just be satisfied with that and call it a day, because I think with further research, I'm reasonably confident that we could develop better vaccines that could help us actually eliminate disease, that is, stop transmission of these diseases. And in doing so, that might help us develop technology. If we do that, for instance, with one disease, we can potentially do it with others. And we know we can do it for some diseases. And we even can understand why now it works in some diseases where it doesn't work in others. So I think ultimately, hopefully, we'll be able to do it for viruses like SARS coronavirus 2 that can change their genetic makeup rapidly over time. Whereas right now, we can do it more easily for viruses that tend to stay stable over time. That's optimistic for sure. Yeah, I think following up on the COVID talk, you know, Peter, you've been credited with conceptualizing the U.S. response to the COVID pandemic as far as vaccines go. And I, I would say that inquiring minds want to know, is it true that you actually coined the phrase Operation Warp Speed? And, you know, I think it'd be interesting for you to share a little bit more with us about the origins of that groundbreaking initiative. Well, thanks for the question. You know, it's really a team effort that helped expedite the development of COVID-19 vaccines. But that said, Making use of my knowledge of drug development and the regulatory requirements, I did work to suggest ways of shortening the time to develop and deploy a vaccine in a way that would be as rapid as possible. And this originated out of the fact that originally the companies came to us with an estimate that it would take about two years to take the vaccines from the concepts that they had or the initial candidates that they had onto a production-based vaccine that could be deployed. And so there was a desire to shorten that. And we kind of aimed to want to see this happen in a year or less, rather than in the two years originally anticipated, in part because you could look at curves of the pandemic to show that there would be many, many lives lost if it took two years rather than one year. In other words, many more lives would have been lost had it taken that extra year. And it is true that I came up with the code name Warp Speed that was ultimately adopted as the name of the endeavor. It's not that I was that much of a Star Trek fan, but I do have to admit that I did watch a fair amount when I was growing up. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, you know only too well that with any vaccine or drug that's given to billions of people, 
there will be some adverse events. And you've said that monitoring vaccines is not for the faint of heart, but you've also been a big advocate for transparency. So how does keeping the public informed impact confidence in the safety and the effectiveness of vaccines? You know, some people say the more you talk about adverse events, the fewer people will get vaccinated. But clearly, many of us hope, at least, that that's not true. And all the work of CBER is clearly based on science. And how do you respond to this apparent rejection of science among what we'll call the anti-vaccination community? Yeah, so I think we have to divide up the anti-vaccination community into at least two groups. And I think there are those that are vaccine hesitant, and those are those who have a discomfort with taking vaccines because of a lack of knowledge about what they're about. And for those people, I'm really devoted to answering the questions and helping them become comfortable with the very real benefits that vaccination can provide. To me, it's this kind of patient education that's an integral part of our responsibilities as healthcare providers. And I believe with patients and plain language answers, we can generally bring people along. I think that's something that may be familiar to you uh, because you do it so well. And then obviously, there are the anti-vaccine activists. And taking those people on in a point-by-point debate seems non-productive at best and aggravating or worse at the other end of the spectrum. So instead, my feeling with these individuals is that we must just redouble our efforts to put out accurate and truthful information, and then on occasion when necessary, explain the secondary gain that these individuals derive from spreading their misinformation. For instance, during the COVID-19 pandemic, a number of those who were spreading vaccine misinformation were actually purveyors of vitamin cocktails or unapproved drugs that they were promoting instead. And we can also see people who use this potentially for political gain. And so I think we just have to call that out as we see it, rather than trying to respond to each uh, and every one of the anti-vaccine points that they tend to put out, because there's always a back and forth otherwise that's just not productive. Yeah, I think that sounds like such a reasonable approach, Peter. And we we know that you've had to make some unpopular decisions at FDA, especially during the early days of the pandemic. So how do you withstand that criticism and political pressure and maintain your sanity? And I think luckily, early on my career, I realized that at least personally, I always needed to do the right as I saw the right from the scientific and ethical perspectives. And that's really helped me during a period when others may have wanted to take shortcuts or short circuit the processes that ensure that medical products are high quality, safe and effective. And it's my solid belief in the primacy of what we do in support of public health that helps me withstand criticism from those with other agendas. And also it helps me withstand political pressure uh, from those who would want us to compromise those scientific and ethical perspectives. It's been said, Peter, that uh, Operation Warp Speed was possible because of efforts that you led prior to the pandemic to build trust between researchers, pharmaceutical companies, and the FDA. In other words, breaking down an, a seemingly adversarial system. How has FDA changed the way it works and 
Do you think that change will be permanent going to the future? So I, I appreciate that. And I think prior to the pandemic, I think one of the ways I have wanted us to work at CBER is that although we are not in bed with industry, we are also, as products are developed, not at constant odds arguing with them either. I think we are here to work collaboratively towards the development of medical products, and it's our job to make sure that we objectively and fairly make sure that they're high quality and they're safe and effective. And that means that we can have an active dialogue and listen to industry, listen to stakeholders, and take these things into account while still maintaining our objectivity. Sometimes that means we have to set up some firewalls to make sure that this can happen. But I think that willingness to work together towards public health in a non-judgmental way, because I think one of the problems that we sometimes used to see and sometimes still see at FDA is this concept that the good and the bad, you know, industry bad, FDA good. And I, I don't, I believe we tried to break down those barriers even prior to the pandemic. I'd like to come from the side that we're all on the side of trying to advance public health. It's just we each have a different part of the mission. And during the pandemic, if I had to identify one key contribution that I helped make to expedite vaccine development the most, it would be instigating a clear change in the way we communicated with companies about the development process during the pandemic, which was instead of having formal meetings triggered by formal communications, we instituted what I would call a constant contact policy where product developers could ask us questions by email or phone as they came up. And then we responded by phone, email, or when necessary, by setting up a meeting within hours to a few days at the most. And I kind of jokingly call this the dry cleaners approach to regulatory advice. We aim for in by nine, out by five. But all kidding aside, getting rapid regulatory advice regarding manufacturing, non-clinical and clinical development back to product developers in real time ultimately made a big difference in reducing timelines. And going forward, although we can't do quite that kind of rapid turnaround for everything, I think we will have some pilots. In fact, we've already announced a pilot in the rare disease space to see if this constant contact policy can reduce the time to development for non-infectious disease products. And if it does, we might adopt that more widely at FDA. Well, that's certainly to the benefit of everyone. And we have to remind ourselves, you can't have an immunization program without vaccines, right? <laughs> so, Peter, I imagine the list is somewhat long, but to shorten it, I guess, what most keeps you awake at night these days? You know, I, I think some of the things that keep me awake and one, I'll just pick on, I'll, let me just pick on one. It's something that's kept me awake ever since, even before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic. And it continues to, especially given some of the recent events, which that I'm truly concerned that we've entered an era where the tremendous advances in science and specifically vaccination that we've made over decades won't be applied to human health because of the amount of misinformation that's being spread to facilitate alternative objectives. And it's just really, it makes me very sad that hesitancy towards vaccines that are safe and effective 
for example, against the COVID-19 vaccines or influenza vaccine have unnecessarily cost many lives. And that's just something that shouldn't happen. And I'd love to see that changed over the next years, but it keeps me up because I want to know what we can do. I'd love to be able to do something to help change that. Well, we certainly share your concern, Peter. Now, looking to the future, you've said that artificial intelligence, very much in the news, could be a game changer for drug development and approval, for example, by improving the efficiency of manufacturing and data analysis. Would you care to expand on that concept a bit? Yeah, thanks for that question. I I think there are actually many examples of our work that might benefit from the application of artificial intelligence. And that's without actually doing harm to those who humans who actually do work at the agency. Uh, So just to give two examples, you know, biologics manufacturing is quite complex and there are many different parameters that can affect the ultimate product output. We now have real-time sensors that we can place on biologic processes as a product's being generated, and these can then be linked to some final product quality characteristic. And what one can do is take all of these output from the sensors and feed them into the supercomputer, correlate them with the output, and actually come up with continuous process improvement leading to a higher quality product. And I think that's something that's quite exciting because the idea of having products that can continually get better in terms of yield or removal of impurities is something that's quite exciting. And supercomputers do that really well. We can't take 15 parameters measured every second over the course of uh, several days and integrate it all and figure that out, whereas a supercomputer can. And just as another example, on the side of safety surveillance, the power of artificial intelligence and natural language processing may help us to identify and refine safety signals for vaccines and other medical products much more efficiently than we currently do by sorting through things so that we actually can flag those things most efficiently that a human being actually should look at. It seems like Star Trek is back again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's been difficult, certainly for many of us, particularly during the pandemic, to find that healthy balance between work and home lives. And I think, you know, for those of us who frequently watch FDA meetings on Zoom, We've enjoyed the still-life paintings in your home office, which I understand were painted by your wife. So do you have a similar creative outlet that we don't know of, and what do you like to do for fun? So uh, (laughs) the paintings by my wife, by the way, uh, the teddy bear in the blue paintings were done many years ago when she was in school, and people see this teapot and a, it's actually not a teddy bear, it's a polar bear. The teapot was one she used, and the stuffed polar bear was actually given to her and it was handmade by another artist, Fred. So it's made me happy, and it's it's made me happy to see that other people have been happy during the pandemic watching those. As for what's kind of kept me sane during this period, I found that during the pandemic, and actually since the pandemic, kind of keeping daily routines have really helped me, including getting kind of regular exercise. I kind of made it a habit of starting the day by doing some of the same things every day, kind of a bit of language learning on Duolingo and some daily puzzles from the New York Times. And then 
for exercise. I have a wonderful large dog and uh, go on long walks with him. Eddie and I uh, uh, traipse around the neighborhood a few times a day. So uh, that really has helped keep me sane during some very interesting times over the past several years. That sounds like a great way to start a day, I'll tell you. (laughs) So, Peter, before we sign off, I would like to give you the same opportunity that we give to all of our guests, and that is, what is the myth that you would most like to bust? So here's the myth, which is, I'm young and healthy, so I don't need to get vaccinated against COVID or the flu. I think the truth is, although the likelihood is low that you could be hospitalized or die from one of these infections, the possibility does exist. And why take any chances when there are such highly safe preventative measures that one can take? Well said. We've been talking today with Dr. Peter Marks who is the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, we call it CBER, at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. That's the group. Peter, you and your team, thank you for making sure that the vaccines that are available to the United States public and indeed around the world are safe and effective. Thanks to everyone else for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about NFID, be sure to visit us online at nfid.org. Until next time, Thank you.